So I'm going to start, interestingly enough, with something kind of that I've never done here in this particular study. Uh, and I know some people, they're kind of, they wake, they're kind of jones on this kind of thing. So I don't overdo this because I don't think it's, it's wise. But I wanted to actually start with this concept of, of, a, of a clip from a movie. And I, and I know some people, again, they just love doing this kind of thing. Uh, but I don't normally. But there is, uh, so let me find it really quick here. Um, oh, that's my problem. There is this uh, this show, and some of you are familiar with it from uh, from the American television called ER. And, and, and I don't normally, I'm, I'm actually one of those people that kind of likes to live life, so I, I don't really get uh, a lot of chance to watch TV until Netflix comes, when then you can just pick whenever you want to watch it. But there's this particular scene that stands out uh, that, for whatever reason, really caught my eyes. And so I'm going to do this because we don't have a screen at the moment to shoot it at all. That's so I'm going to imagine you. I'm going to invite you all to come around this table right here, and I'm going to show it on the big iPad that I have at the moment, so at least you could see it and hear it. But I want you to see this two-minute scene. And here's the setting. There's this guy, and he was a doctor who, at one time, was administering a drug that he knew was going to kill someone, and it clogged. Uh, in the IV, and so instead of him seeing that as a sign, he actually replaced the IV and forced it so that the guy would ultimately die, and now he's dealing with this responsibility as he himself has cancer, and he's trying to face death. So this guy, he's a doctor, he's in a hospital expecting to die, and while that happens, he calls for a chaplain, and the chaplain comes in, and the chaplain is kind of going to do what you would hear not in this room, but you hear a lot out on those streets about God. It's kind of the whatever you want kind of cool thing that everyone kind of tries to play. Well, I'd like you to see this scene because I just think it really says something. So go ahead and gather there for a moment. I'm going to just, I'm getting it, I'm putting it together here. And it really does relate to our study tonight. You couldn't have known that. God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man, and I ignored the sign. How can I even hope for forgiveness? I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. Which means what? That maybe your guilt over these deaths has become your reason for living. Maybe you need a new reason to go on. I, I, I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I'm old. I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that is holding me back is that I am afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. What do you think that is? Oh, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. So people can do anything. They can rape, they can murder, they can steal all in the name of God, and it's okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one-size-fits-all crap. Hey, Dr. Truman. No, I don't have time for this now. Greg, it's okay. Look, I understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. How could you possibly say that? No, you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself... No, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. I know you're upset. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. That's secular television program. And it's like, how many, how many times do you find the sort of secular, let's all be cool with God thing getting just ditched like that? You know, anyway, go ahead and have a seat. The reason I say that is, is as we get into our chapter today, we're going to see two camps. As we get into our chapter today, we're going to see two camps because the story leads us to two camps. The two camps that we're led to look at now in 2 Samuel 18, and you'll see that, of course, in your handouts as well, is because David himself is running for his life. He's running for his life because his own son is trying to kill him. Now, of all your hard days that you've had and your rough times, 
You ever had a day that your kid's trying to kill you? Well, David, is, as he's seen some really horrible things. David, in his own acts of selfishness and taking another woman who was married, by the way, to his bodyguard, the granddaughter of his chief counselor, and ultimately he takes her from the house, sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant, he has the husband killed to try to fix the problem. Of course, that's never going to do so. And then ultimately from that, he winds up in this situation where he winds up marrying the girl because now she's a widow. And everyone thinks it's all nice and hunky-dory until God steps in and tells him. And David, by the way, he's eroding. Understand, even if you try to tell everyone else, and people often do this, they try to tell people that, yeah, yeah, I know this is what the Bible says, but it's not true. Or, you know, I, but I feel like it is amazing how many times later people really do own up to it and say, you know what, actually, is my, I really wanted to believe that. I just couldn't. I tried to believe that. But inside, I was being torn apart. And I was keeping a brave face and I was trying to be suave and cool. But really, in the end of it all, this stuff was eating me up like this guy. And in this situation, David now, he, this, you know, God in the, the kindness and the mercy of God actually nails David and, and calls it a sin. He shows David his own heart that he would be quick, even in his own judgment as king, to condemn the very thing that was lesser of an offense than what David had done in this, in this household. And in that, David's like, this guy's going to pay the full arm of the law, the full, full that's just fourfold. And David now is going to start making those installments himself. Now, no parent should have to outlive their children, anyone, and have to experience the death of their own child. David's going to see that with four of them. And he saw that with the child that David had impregnated Bathsheba with, and he saw it with his oldest, who had raped his half-sister, for which then that girl, Tamar, has a full brother, and he then goes and kills that guy. His name is Amnon. That's the second boy. That boy that did the killing, his name is Absalom. Now he's in a situation where he's now in essence tried to kill his dad to take over his kingdom. He is not the rightful king, but he really wants the throne. Here's the problem. And this guy becomes synonymous with not only a traitor, but a traitor in the camp that stirs up the people against you. And his name is Absalom. The problem with Absalom's is that we love them so much we don't see the danger they are, or to the full extent. And we don't see how toxic they are because we love them so much we want them to be somebody different than they are. And so we look at someone like this and we hope, surely they couldn't have said that, surely they couldn't have done that, surely they wouldn't have been gathering an army for their own importance for the purpose, in essence, of telling God to stand down because they'll take the position instead. They'll make the rules. It's under their terms. And somehow they think God's going to be okay with that. Well, David's had it really rough. And what we see in chapter 18 is the demise of Absalom. But here's the weirdest part. This guy who was trying to kill David, who flees with his 600 men that he had gathered when he was back in Gath, The guy who's trying to kill dad, dad doesn't want to kill him. It's his son. Though the guy is his enemy, he's still his son. I totally feel the same. I mean, I think about that and my whole heart goes, "Ah, ah, ah." and to make it worse, this guy, Absalom, he's gorgeous. And what it tells us is that, you know, every gorgeous person seems to have one thing, or many do at least. They kind of have that one trait. And for Absalom, it was his hair. Absalom, what we read is that the guy would get his hair cut once a year, and, he would, and they would weigh it. Now, who weighs your hair after they cut it every year? Now, now if they did that, for, for some of us, well, for some of us, it's not going to be a whole lot of anything. But for some of us, it's, they're going to just look and go, you know, they're just happy to sweep it off the floor and not breathe it in. But for them, they would do this. And it was like two, three kilos. It was like six pounds. Now, that's probably why they waited. They're like, oh, my goodness, you have like really sick hair, bro. And so, well, when we just, you know, can you imagine they're at the barbershop and they're like, yo, yo, check this out. Come here. Some, someone got a scale. Someone got a scale. We got to put this on a scale. You know, and so, you know, they're um, like, man, this is the heaviest head I've ever. You got, you got like heavy head, you know. And we're not talking about extensions or weaves or something like that. We're talking about this is his hair. 
You know, and you could just see him walking down the street and middle-aged men going, I hate you. You know, and, and, and the reason I say that is the very icon of what excelled him becomes his own demise. It will often with someone like an Absalom. David now has arrived. He has fled. Absalom has stolen the house. He's in Jerusalem and he's taken over. And dad has fled with his men to a place called Machanaim. Machanaim, by the way, means two camps. And it's because all the way back in the book of Genesis 32, Jacob, who was the person who gets the name changed to Israel, is running from his brother who wants to kill him. And he knows he's going to encounter him. And there, after after getting his brides and leaving with the woman he really worked for, uh, ultimately, he's, he's now separated from that situation and he knows the next thing in life is he's going to be confronted with the guy that wants him dead. And to make it worse, he's hairy and he's a killer. We know that. He's a hunter. And, and what do you have here? You have a hairy guy who's a killer. Oh, it works out real well, doesn't it? But there, as this guy Jacob is freaking out, God sends angels to minister to him so that Jacob could have strength for this confrontation, which is going to be amazingly different than he anticipated. In this situation, David has gone to Mahanaim. I remind you, it means two camps. That's why Jacob calls it two camps. Because he's like, you know, though this is the camp of man, this is clearly the camp of God too, because he's come and sent his own servants to come and help us. Well, David now, in this situation, he's in a bad way like Jacob was. These guys show up. And these guys that show up, show up because David really is in need of comfort. Not only is David fleeing from his own son, but then these other nut jobs start, start showing up. A guy named Ziba, because he had actually helped you know, his, his predecessor's grandson named Mephibosheth, and the guy that was his servant wasn't hip on it, so he seizes the opportunity to take the guy's land. His name is Ziba. And then there's another guy, Shemai, from the tribe of Benjamin, which again was where Dave, David's predecessor had come from. And Shemai starts cursing David at the place where David's wife was pulled from the man, well, I should say this, David's woman was pulled from the man she was married to. And then Ahithophel, David's counselor. And all of these things start showing up. And man, it's like, you, you kind of know there are those days when you get the news and you're dealing with it. And it just seems like anybody that's got a boot is now trying to figure out a place to shove it in your ribs. Well, that's kind of where this is. But then David shows up in Mahanaim. And as David shows up in Mahanaim, God meets him there. And other guys show up. A guy named Shobi. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the name Shobi, I just kind of get the idea of this guy, and he's Asian, and he's got that cool bandana with the red spot. You know, he's like, a, he's like Shobi. Well, Shobi, by the way, for what it's worth, he's a guy that actually, uh, he goes in, and he, and he just, he comes into the situation, and he brings David some food and some, some sustenance to help him and his men. And not only him, but there's a guy named Akhir. And, and it, well, I could develop that, but it was last week. But Mahir, by the way, was the guy who, by the way, this, this young crippled boy was living at when David went and rescued him and adopted him, if you will. Uh, and with that, this guy now shows kindness too. And an old guy who's 80 years old named Barzillai. And these men just sort of show up and they minister to, to David at a time when David really, really needs it. And understand, my prayer is, as much as we'd love this to be just perfect heaven. Truth be told, church is probably going to be Mahanaim. I mean, it's the place where you're dealing with the world and stuff is coming and you may be, even on your way in, somebody cussed at you or somebody did something stupid or almost barfed on your shoes. Let's face it, it's Covent Garden that happens, you know, and you come in here and you're still kind of trying to wipe all that weirdness of the world off and you come in here and my prayer is that God would meet us right here and refresh your soul and strengthen you for the things that are still before you where God is going to show his might. Well, that's where David is at this point. Amidst all of that, another man shows up. His name is Itai. Itai, by the way, David, he says, please let me join you as David's fleeing. And David looks at him and goes, you just joined us last, last night, you know, yesterday. Why in the world would you want to follow us now? You should just go. And Itai's like, look it, I'm committed to you, king. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Sounds a lot like Ruth, doesn't it? And he's like, I'm just committed. I'm committed. And because I'm committed, David, I'm yours. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm with you in this. So David says, all right, come along. Now that is important because this Itai character is going to really have an opportunity to prove his salt in this chapter. So here's where we're at. David's in a camp. That camp, or this city now, because it's got walls and gates, and, and, and uh, it's called Machanaim, two camps. And this whole chapter is going to be about two camps. 
Ultimately, it's going to be about really the camp of God or the camp of man. In this situation, by the way, that we saw in that particular scene, there was a man and he did not want any of the world anymore. He had enough of the world. He needed God. He needed heaven's voice to speak about forgiveness and atonement. And unfortunately, the representative who's supposed to represent heaven was actually still representing the world. And that's why he really sniffed a loser in it. You could tell he saw this as a phony. He's like, I already have all that. I need forgiveness. And you're not offering that. You're trying to do this whole thing where we try to reason it instead of actually, I need grace. He doesn't even know the words to say. But we know those words because we know that. Now, with that in mind, we get to chapter 18. Look at chapter 18 then. It says in verse 1, David numbered the people who were with him. And he said, captains of thousands, captains of hundreds over him, oh Lord God, please speak now, please. We've prayed, we've sought your face. Please, God, please speak fluent us to us in a way we can hear, in a way we could understand, in a way that our lives are transformed. Please meet us now. At our weaknesses, meet us and show us your strength. At our foolishness, show us your wisdom. And God, right now, please show us your grace and show us the call you place on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume because I say it, it's true. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. And that's why when someone says, well, I think because I feel because, well, what do you test it to? Their feelings? Have your feelings always been true? Mine haven't. Well, now, did you notice, by the way, David now obviously has more than 600 men following him. He's breaking this group up into thousands and hundreds, which tells us somewhere in all of David's fleeing, not everybody's with Absalom. That says, David then sent out one-third of the people under Joab, that's his commander, a third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who is Joab's brother, and then a third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite, now, I remind you, that's the guy who had just joined David the day before he crossed the brook. Kidron. And the king said to the people, I'll also go with you. But the people answered and said, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die. Will they, take care, will they care about us? You're with 10,000 of us now, for you are more help to us in this city. And the king said, Well, whatever seems best to you, I'll do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now, don't miss this. Why would David be so quick to step in and say, you know what, I think I'll fight this battle with you? Because this whole thing started with David's fall with Bathsheba. And the way that God prefaced that was, it was the time when the kings go out to battle, but David stayed home. And you could see, it appears to me, that David's learned his lesson. Now listen, please. The difference between playing the sport and life is that in life, you'll get tackled even on the bench. You're aware of that, right? I mean, in whatever sport, especially if you're decent at it, chances are someone might be gunning for you if you're out on the court or field. Someone's going to probably know who you are and be, be, you've, you've got a target on you. But as long as you're on the bench, you're no threat. But in real life, you're going to get hit either way. And if you're going to get hit either way, wouldn't it be nice if you were doing something decent when it happened? You know, for all the scars I have, the ones that, I mean, some of them, let's face it, if you get older, you like to tell this story because it was a cool story. Somewhere in it, you were doing something that was crazy and lambunctious or whatever. And in all of it, you know, you kind of go, well, you know, while we were doing this thing, we were bungee jumping out of a plane and we hit a, you know, we hit a mountain and look, you know, this scar, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it's like, it's, but then there are other ones where it's like, well, well, what's that scar? And you're like, well, I really don't want to tell you what that scar is. That was me being, you know. I was just sitting there and I fell off a chair. You know, I'm like, that's a different story to tell, you know. And the reason I say that is, is that David was always safer on the battlefield with God than he would ever be in the palace by himself. 
Don't we realize how dangerous it is even to be on our own houses? If you think about David's palace 2,000 years ago, bigger than ours, roomier, I would grant you that, but he didn't have heating like we have heating. He didn't have a microwave or running water. I mean, could you imagine? It's like the greatest king 500 years ago couldn't dream of what a person living in a hostel right now has. And we look at that, and the reason I say that is David's palace, for all of its comforts that David had, and the threat because of those comforts, we have that, and we have that, and then some. And all it takes, I mean, could you imagine explaining to David that you could punch up something like, I don't know, the Internet? Or, you know, well, if you really want groceries, you don't have to go and grow them. You can actually order them online, and somebody shows up at your door, and then you have to go down a flight of steps to answer the door so they can give them to you. Could you imagine that? The only reason I say that is, is that for those of us who know the call of God and we start walking with God, man, sheltering ourselves up and just locking us thinking somehow that's safe is such a crazy move. Especially when the Lord calls us out to the field and we should be out there. No matter how many bullets are whizzing, if the Lord calls us to the field, it's his job to protect us. I'm not saying be crazy. Just be crazy for him. So David says, hey, look, and I'm jumping in. And they look and they go, hey, hey, hey. And what they understand is something you need to understand. What they understand is the only reason they're of any value at all is because they belong to the king. And the only reason they could be of any concern to the enemy is because they know how much the king cares. But what they really want is the king. The king is the target. And the only reason the enemy gives you any time or trouble is because he knows something, I believe, better than we do. And that is he knows how much, or at least to a better degree, how much God loves us. And he knows how much it hurts God when we make stupid choices that hurt ourselves and others. It took me to become a dad to understand that. As a dad, when I watch my kids do something that I know is going to hurt them and each other, it hurts. And it hurts like a unique pain that I've never had experiencing the pain inflicted upon myself. Man, I'd rather experience some of the most heinous pain that I've ever had compared to watching my children in pain. And the only reason the enemy is bothering you is because he knows how much God loves you, at least to some degree, better than perhaps we do. And the reason I say that is, so when the enemy crawls in your grill, and by the way, he can't touch you. I'm not making that up. You read First John chapter 5, and you tell me what it says. But what it tells me is, whoever is born in, of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. I don't know. It sounds pretty simple to me. That doesn't mean he can't roar. That doesn't mean he can't lie. That doesn't mean he can't tempt. That doesn't mean he can't condemn. Oh, he's a good talker. The question is whether you want to listen. But what if when the enemy crawled up in your grill and started started chatting at you, you're like, wow, you're doing this because you realize how much God loves me. And let it backfire on him. Wow, you know, you wouldn't do this if you didn't realize how much God loved me. So they're like, you know what, David, you stay here. And David, I remind you, is at the gate of two cities. And let's face it, could David have a heart more torn? There's a guy who's trying to kill him. The natural defense to that. The natural defense to that is kill the guy. Kill or be killed. But the father in him doesn't want him dead at all. So he's very torn. And there he is at the gate of his own two camps, if you will. And he looks at his men and notice what he says. The king commanded Joab, verse 5, and Abishai and Ittai, those are the three, I remind you, the commanders. He said, deal gently. Now look at that word gently. Not just don't kill him. You realize what he's saying is don't hurt him. Now, imagine, I know the guy's trying to kill me, and therefore he'll try to kill all of you to get to me. But could you not hurt him? Now that makes no sense at all, does it? Interesting for what it is, because the natural man, I remind you, David's at the gate of the city of two camps. The natural man says, kill him, get him, because we want vengeance. And we don't understand that when things don't seem just. And what we really want to do is win the fight, win the argument. And God wants us to win the soul, a very different thing. And I'm so thankful for those 
who, before I knew Jesus specifically, that would have more than happy seen, seen me dead. In some cases, really made it clear through the words and actions. But yet in all of that, how God says, no, 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 no. We're going to actually kill the old man in you. So the person they really want dead is going to die. But we don't have to actually put you prematurely in judgment to do so. We're going to hang him on a cross. So with that in mind, he says, deal gently uh, for, for my sake, not for his sake, but for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard the king as he gave this instructions concerning Absalom. And again, here's our problem with Absalom is we love him so much we don't see their threat. But then in that it tells us that David is, is he's acting in two camps. Verse 6 it says, The people went into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim, by the way, is west of the Jordan. There are two camps drawn. It's the camp of the king and the camp of the usurpers. And here's the most amazing as I look at this, and ultimately there are two kingdoms. There's God and man. But I don't want you to miss this, that two of them are about to engage in battle. All I remind you at, at, at Hushai's advice, all of the nation of Israel has gathered, other than it seems to have defected to David, has gathered behind Absalom to fight the rightful king and the people that stand with him. And this was started by one guy. This civil war started with one guy. Not a, not a group. Not some kind of civil union. Not some kind of council, not some kind of external government, other than we might say saint. But in that, this was one guy who grabbed a bunch of bodyguards, who put himself in a limo, who made himself a video, spent a whole lot of money and tried to make everyone believe he was important and then started stealing the hearts of the people by trying to make the king look inept and uncaring and aloof and uninvolved. And the same thing will happen. People say, oh, that God, he doesn't care and he's not involved. And they're doing the same thing. Look at how important I am. And by the way, you'll see that with people that are in the ministry. Well, they're like, I know the Bible looks like it says this, but you know, you're never going to understand the Bible unless you listen to me. Listen, I'm not saying that. You'll never understand the Bible unless the writer of the Bible lives inside of you. And the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ, the author of the book lives inside of you. Hey, isn't it something different when you get an audiobook read by the author? Because you kind of get the idea where they really were going with it. Well, you get it read by the author, the guy who wrote this book, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you the moment you said yes to Jesus. Ephesians 1.13 says that. So there's two camps, and the thing was started by one guy. This whole civil war started by one kid that started, by the way, before that with one sin that led to another sin that led to another sin. And that started because of one man who sat in a house when he should have been in battle. And that's what set the whole thing in motion. And few things are as devastating as a person of God, a man of God, a woman of God that surrenders to sin. Because their influence is already great. But David has the Lord with him. And because David has the Lord with him, it really doesn't matter the size of David's army. It's actually irrelevant. We know for sure that though David may have, ten, uh, may have thousands, not tens of thousands, but thousands, we also know, though, that Absalom's army is massive in comparison because we're about to see at least 20,000 of them be radically affected in a moment. God can incorporate anything at his disposal. There's the beauty of serving God. It is never going to be about whether God is on your side. When Joshua, who is serving the Lord, sees the commander of God's army and says, Are you for us or for our enemies? And his answer is no. Now, you ever have that? When you give God an A or a B and he gives you a C, you're like, God, yeah, I'm going to give you this option. I've already surmised the situation. Here's an option. Here's another option. Which one do we go with? And then God doesn't answer at all. And you're like, God, I really need an answer. And we don't realize his silence is an answer. Because what we said is, God, you need to tell me A or B. And God knows neither is a good option. So his silence is the only thing left to do. Well, in this situation with Joshua, he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And he goes, no. And the reason is it was not about who God was for. It was rather for was the real issue was, was who was for God. And it's like, Joshua, it isn't about whether I'm for you. It's the issue is, are you for me? And that's the point. So the good news is, as we are for God, 
God is unlimited in his resources. This is the same person who flung universes and is still the architect of every atom in your body. Well, with that, Absalom then, verse 9, met the servants of David. Now, not met them like, nice to meet you. They're engaging in battle. Absalom rode on a mule. Mules are important, by the way. To this day, perhaps you're familiar with the fact they're called the engineers of the Middle East because they are the ones who have this tendency, mules and donkeys, to find the safest route down a hill. And they actually build the roads from that. And this mule, and then we know them as thinking, well, they're stubborn. Well, they're only stubborn when you want them to go someplace they really don't want to go. They're kind of like cats, except the difference is the reason they say no isn't because they're just willful. It's because you actually, it's these kind of things that won't pull you off a cliff. Horses, on the other hand, they'll actually run off a cliff. There's the danger. But this particular mule knows exactly what he's doing. Absalom's riding on a mule. The mule went under a thick bough or thick boughs of a great terebinth tree. And his head, that's Absalom's head, was caught in the terebinth. And he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule just went on. That was under him. Now, all of a sudden, what we're seeing is the life of Absalom demonstrated in front of us. Because you know where he is? He is between two camps. Heaven's above him. Earth is below him. And at that moment, you kind of go, what choice is he going to make? Is he going to surrender to the rightful king? Here's the problem. On earth, which one of those two is going to win? If you're hanging somewhere... Given enough time, will you float or will you sink? The inevitable answer is you'd sink because we have this lovely thing called gravity that keeps everything from hitting us on our chin that's below us. And when you were dangled between the two, unless you swear allegiance to the proper, to proper authority, that's our proper king, you'll find yourself actually in that same place. And we're told, by the way, that we're in a unique space because we are citizens of heaven. Philippians taught us that. And though we're citizens of heaven, we are citizens of a place we've never really been, and yet we're ambassadors of the place. So I'm trying to explain to you heaven, and they're like, well, what's it like? And of course, our mind is trying to wrap it around, like, what street do I want to live on? And we can try to give them a physical description from Revelation where we see things like, well, the streets are made out of gold, but what good is that? Is heaven really about streets of gold? Shiny thrones, lots of singing, naked babies playing harps with little wings. Well, what makes heaven heaven is the one who lives there. It's his home, and that's Jesus. And that's the part we get to demonstrate. I'm not be able to be, I may not be able to be your tour guide for the locale of heaven. I could certainly tell you what the environment's like because I walk with the same one to whom it belongs. And though we are representatives of heaven, we are in the world. We are not of it anymore. We are not of this world, that's clear, but we're still walking in it. And the challenge is going to be, and you know this, every day we're going to be challenged to make a choice what camp we really want to represent. Any day... All, if we really want to walk in sin, all we have to do is do what comes naturally. Isn't that scary? You know what's amazing? You could take a bunch of Christians like this, we could stick us in a room, and if we really don't, if we just do what comes naturally, we'll still find ways to connect under sin because we still have that in common. But if we really want to follow God, we'll have to do what comes supernaturally. And of course, that's what God tells us is walking in the Spirit. The beautiful part is we actually have the choice. Well, with that, in this situation, he's dangling. Now, the Mishnah, which is a collection, the Mishnah, the Talmud, they're a collection of Jewish traditions, you know, verbal traditions that are written down about 500, 600 A.D., roughly about the same time, by the way, as the Quran. They um, say that what happened with this guy, because they make commentary on Scripture, one of the things they said is that he was caught by his hair. It, doesn't, it says he was caught by his head. Now, you can make that decision yourself how it was. It seems the most logical, which I do find interesting. Because that was the benchmark, if you will, the emblem of his gorgeousness. The very thing that propelled him to make him so beautiful in the sight of people is the very thing that nailed him in the end that left him dangling. 
And that will happen to you too. No matter what it is. Your talent, your skill, your gift. The hardest thing to do often is walk with the Lord and still try to take something, drag something over and say, God, you have everything, but this thing's still going to be my little pet thing. And I don't buy it. Because Jesus didn't rescue part of me. He rescued all of me. He didn't just say, all right, I died for a few days a week or whatever. He died to be with me. And he rose again to be my Lord. And the reason I say that is, is that when you talk to someone, they're like, well, you know, this part belongs to God and this part doesn't, but we sing, have all of me. It just doesn't make sense to me. And there we are dangling again. Dangling between heaven and earth, trying to make a decision which one we really want. But the problem is, is unless you make the conscious choice, you're going to fall. So here he is dangling. Now, verse 10. A certain man saw it. What did he see? He saw Absalom dangling. And he saw it and he told Joab, who, remember, mind you, was the commander, and said, I just saw Absalom hanging from a, t- and a terebinth tree. Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. What kind of belt could be worth it? Yeah. It's even better in, in the old King James because the word there is girdle. I could have given you ten shekels and a girdle. The man says to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. No matter who you are, buddy, I still serve the king and his word goes. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, the three commanders, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. So here's the idea. Joab's like, why didn't you just kill him? He was dangling? He was dangling? He's like, like, how hard is it to kill a dangling guy? Sooner or later, he's going to stop moving, and it's like he's not even a moving target anymore. And he's no threat. He's dangling. Just come near him with your spear, get close enough, and just go, how hard is that? And the guy says, look it, here's the weird part. Whether you know it or not, you still serve the king, Joab. And if I had done that, it wouldn't matter how much you gave me, man, because sooner or later, David would know I killed his son, and then he would tell you to kill me. So, what's it worth? If I'm dead, it doesn't matter how much you give me, I'm not having fun with it. Because don't you realize we serve the king here? And that's not what the king said. Joab in verse 14, he says, I cannot linger with you. You know what that means? He says, we are so done. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart, which means they went right to his chest. There's a guy hanging from a tree, a son hanging from a tree that has been pierced in the side because he's guilty. With three spears, and of course we could go back, but we won't. You can get the, ta- the tapes. You can see how old I am. You can get the MP3s of the last couple of messages about how everything seemed to have happened in threes with David and what he had done, the people who had cursed him and how that would, could have reminded him. And here now the three that go through Absalom's heart. And it says, while he was still alive in the midst of the terrorist tree. So imagine there's Absalom hanging and there comes Joab with his three spears. And the most amazing part is, it didn't seem like that even did the trick. I don't know how many, how many spears have to go through your heart to kill you. One tends to, I, I think one. But it says that in verse 15, the young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So after the three spears through the guy's heart, then the rest of the guys are like, we'll finish the job, we'll kill him dead. I don't anyways. All of that to say, Absalom's left hanging on a tree, pierced through the chest, Surrounded by opposing guards, a son dies hanging on a tree, pierced through his ribs for his own sin. Because this is what happens when somebody that's intended to be a son stands up against the king in rebellion. This is what he deserves. And God, in his infinite love for you and for me, knows that. So sends his only begotten son to pay the price for you and me. What would be the price? 
of rebellion when you should be a son, but instead you rebel against the king and you say, I'll call the shots instead. I'm not submitting to you. I'll do it my way. It's my throne, my decisions. I'll make the rules. Well, clearly what it seems is the proper decision or the proper punishment to hang from a tree, to be pierced in the side, and to die. So should it surprise us that a thousand years after this event, Jesus, the Son of God, hangs off a tree. You'd say, but it was a cross. Interesting, because the book of Galatians, quoting Deuteronomy, says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul tells us, it's still wood, it's a tree. And in that same way, Jesus dies. And above his head is the title, the charge, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. As far as Rome is concerned, He was a threat because he declared himself king over the king of Rome because that's what I deserve by doing what I have done prior to coming to him is trying to exalt my choices and and saying this is the way it should be because I've reasoned it in my head and this is the punishment right in front of us. Should it surprise us? The result, verse 16. So Joab blew the trumpet. All the people returned from pursuing Israel and Joab held back the people. No reason to fight anymore. We've killed the the enemy. And they took Absalom, cast him in a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. And there Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Deuteronomy 21, for what it's worth, talks about his son who has completely openly declared rebellion against his father, who is stoned and left as an example. And it's interesting because that's exactly what's happening here, whether he knows it or not. And and he's given himself a criminal's burial where you're thrown in a pit covered in those stones. It's interesting because the book of Joshua speaks over and over and over again against these stone memorials. There was a good stone memorial when they went and crossed the Jordan and they collected stones and put a pile and said, this is what God did. And then from that point on, you start seeing these testimonies that are warnings. Achan, in verse, uh, chapter 7, who steals what is, was not his, buried in a pile of stones after being dead. The king of Ai, in chapter 8, buried as well. Uh, chapter 10, the five southern kings, covered in stones that block a cave's entrance. And then, of course, I can't help but think the last time I saw a, a stones of a much smaller degree was actually David, who grabbed five smooth, small ones back at the Valley of Elah, in a brook in 1 Samuel 17 when he took on Goliath. And here now, there is a pile of stones going, whatever you do, don't do that guy's thing. And here's the most amazing part. Like two camps, there's two monuments. Look at verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, as it is to this day. And of course, what do you call it? Absalom's monument. Yeah, there's something a little weird about that. Who has their Bible with them? Does anyone have their Bible with them right now? Other than, good. Who, somebody that's not afraid to read? Is that you back in the end, Noreen? We pull, we're calling you? Okay, here it is. Just go back a few chapters. Second Samuel chapter 14. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, will you read, if you will, just verse 27? Okay, so wait a minute. Did Absalom actually have children? According to that verse? Could you read that verse one more time? Sorry, and there you were. You were just past it. So how many kids do we know at least that Absalom had? Yeah, at least had four. Three boys and a girl, right? What are the boys' names? Actually, he doesn't say. Is that weird? What's the girl's name? Tamar. We do know that. Named after the sister who was raped. But we don't even have the boys' names? So how exactly does a guy have three sons? We never get their names. And he goes, I don't have any sons. Well, it's quite simple. There's another guy who would be very much like that. His name is Herod, who would kill most of his sons because he was threatened by them because he was so about himself. Strange as it is, in Second Chronicles chapter 11, verse 21, it tells us that Rehoboam, who is David's grandson, because it was David and then Solomon and then Rehoboam, 
loved a girl named Maaka. Maaka, again, I remind you, means torment. Who names their daughter that? The granddaughter of Absalom. Now, I want to warn you in this. In Middle Eastern culture, a girl, when a daughter is born to, she is temporarily on loan. Because she will marry somebody is the thought, and she will become a part of their family. That's kind of the tradition of even inheriting, if you will, their surname. The reason I say that is to say that Absalom has a grandchild has to come from a son. Because if the girl had gotten married, she would no longer be, in essence, considered a child of Absalom. So Absalom still appears to have, somewhere in this, living sons, or at least one that had a baby that he named Torment, for which then David's grandson winds up marrying. This was what happens when a person is all about taking over somebody else, living in it, ultimately everybody's going to get shadowed for it. And Absalom, Absalom is more concerned about building a monument that says Absalom's pillar than investing in the children that actually should be his honest legacy. Well, isn't that what happens when we get selfish? We hurt everybody, including the people we should be serving? Okay, let's bring this around. Verse 19. Now we know that Absalom's dead. There's a pillar. To this day, by the way, you can go in Israel, in the Kidron Valley, there is a valley, there is a pillar they call the Pillar of Absalom. And it's a little weird because it was built after this, so I'm not sure. Anyways, you know, that's, so you can get a picture and a postcard. Verse 19, it says, Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Now let me run and take news. This is now our application to all of this, these two camps. Now let me run and take the news to the king how the Lord has avenged him and his enemies. I want to proclaim the victory. Can I be the one to tell David we won? Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, nor shall you take the news another day. I'm sorry, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall, have, you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Simple question here. You know, it's like you didn't realize it would be quick tests. Verse 20 does this guy, Ahimaaz, does he know that Absalom is dead? He, he, well, what he says here is Joab says to this guy, Ahimaaz, he goes, you can't go to the king right now because his son is dead. So does Ahimaaz know that, that, that Absalom is dead? Yes, he does. That's just important to note. He knows that the son died. But he goes, this is not the day to tell him. Interesting, what happens next? Verse 21. Joab said to the Cushite. Cush, by the way, somebody, does anyone know where Cush is? Ethiopia? Yeah, it's, it's actually in the area of the Horn of Africa. Now, the reason I say that is, I know this is really a dangerous thing to say. He's going to send this guy instead. Is he racist? I don't know. This is one of those places where you're like, Cush lives matter. And the only reason I'm saying that is because because, I mean, he, he says that Himaaz, I mean, let's face it, the last couple of times someone told David that someone, you know, had been killed, like the king that was his predecessor, David killed him. So you can see him going, now, Himaaz, don't you go. But hey, yo, you, you, yeah. I have a message for you. Now, whatever. But what it says is he said to the Cushite, which we don't even have a name for, go tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Now, Himaaz, he's not giving up. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, I remind you, that's the high priest, one of the high priests, said to Joab, well, but whatever happens, please let me run after the Cushite anyways. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you have no news ready? Why in the world, isn't it weird to have him, hear me on this, isn't it weird to have a messenger with no message? Kind of, it kind of doesn't, it defeats the purpose. So imagine, you're in that kind of townhome, two flights up, and there's a knock at the door. And you kind of know you come running down because if you don't, you're going to get that nasty slip that says you're, you're never going to see your package. You know, we are, we're, it's, you know we've, we've, we've decided to send it back. Or to be honest, one of our employees is probably enjoying it right now. You know, and so you're running down and you're running down there and you open up the door and there's the guy and he's got his brown suit or whatever, you know, with the little thing and he's got the shorts and the cute little tie or whatever. And he's standing there and you're like, yes. And he goes, would you please sign? And you're like, yeah, sure. And you're signing. And then you look over and you're like, so what do I get? And they're like, nothing. I just wanted your signature. I mean, you'd be, you'd be like, oh, come on. What's up with that? What good is, listen, what good is a messenger with no message? 
Does anyone know what the term messenger is? Like if you were to say it in Greek, do you know how to say messenger in Greek? You might be surprised you actually know the word. Angelos. The word messenger literally is angel. Yeah. So for instance, guess what your name is? There we have an angel in the room. You know, she could walk over, slap you in the head. You'd be touched by an angel. Anyway, so, um, but the whole point is that a mess, an angel is not a species. And this is where it gets weird. There's cherub, that's a species. Seraph, that's a species. An angel's a job. And there's all kinds of people that have had jobs as messengers. The reason I say that is, if you were a messenger, it would be really good, I don't know, to have a message. And there are two guys now that are going. Ultimately, he's going to wear Joab down. So notice what it says. It says, um, come on, please let me run. So verse 23, Joab says, okay, run. And then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite, which tells me that the Ethiopians were not always the best long-distance runners. Sorry. You know? Did I get myself in trouble for that? Hey, Let's face it, Africa has dominated long-distance running for so long now. Uh, We still have, you know, bobsleds. Anyways, uh, and it's strange that, well, you know, they got a bobsled team. Uh, So here's here's the weird part about it. Now, the guy that's running, his name, I remind you, that's outrunning the Kushite, his name is Ahimaaz. Ahimaaz means angry brother. Isn't that an interesting name? Because you realize the guy who died, the son, the reason he did all of this was because he was an angry brother. Remember, he's the one who killed his brother, Amnon. He was an angry brother. Now notice where David is, verse 24. And look at how close we are to the end. In verse 24, it says, David was sitting between the two gates. Do you kind of get the idea? God's like, let me remind you again. He's at the place of two camps. There's going to be two sides to this. And I love how God kind of sneaks that in because he wants us to be thinking, okay, I should be thinking about this in a duplicitive sense, that there's going to be one side and there's going to be another. Do you see how he kind of snuck that in? Because it's exactly what we see. Well, what do we know is happening right now that involve two? Messengers. There's the Cushite who obviously has the full message, and then there's the other guy that apparently doesn't have the message. They're both messengers. And I remind you, well, hear me on this as we start to bring this to close. Absalom was hanging between where and where? Heaven and earth. Why did Jacob call it two camps? Because Jacob saw it as a place between heaven and earth, where heaven ministered God to his angels, and earth where he still had to deal with Esau, his brother. Well, now we have two messengers. The watchman went up to the roof of the gate, to the well. Verse 24. He lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone. The watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Now you get the idea. If a single guy, I mean, there's a watchman. Remember, David's hiding in Mahanaim. He's standing at the gate. There's a guy up higher, so he's seeing if there's any impending danger. And the guy comes running. General rule when a king's hiding in a city, or even after he's at the gate, which tells us that David was not tucked in in a little place. David really wanted to be in the battle, uh, I think, because he really wanted to protect his son. But if you see a single guy running, that's pretty. That's probably going to get good news. You see a lot of people running, that's really bad news. Well, with that, it tells us. He looked his eyes, there was a man running alone. Verse 25, the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth, and he drew near. Verse 26, then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, well, there's another man running alone. And the king says, well, he also brings news. So what we have is two messengers, each have a message, or so to speak. Verse 27, the watchman said, I'm running. I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz. I remind you, that's angry brother. The son of Zadok. Now, how does this guy run? You see him a mile away and you're like, that's pretty much like Ahimaaz runs. Now, if you were all running, other than maybe seeing your general appearance, I'm not too sure how many of you would be like, wow, that's clearly the running of Suti. I mean, look at that. I mean, how weird do you have to run that a mile away you go, that's clearly, look at at how he's running. That's I I mean, how do you do that? Well, anyways, for what it's worth. 
So it says, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a sad diversion. Uh, and the king said he's a good man, and he comes with good news. Verse 28, Ahimaaz called out to the king and said to the king, All is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king, and he said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised up their hand against my lord the king. And the king doesn't go, that's so great, bro. He says, the king says, is the young man Absalom safe? That's all David seems to be concerned about. Ahimaaz answered, well, when Joab sent the king's servants and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. Guess what? Ahimaaz did not tell him that his son was dead. Did Ahimaaz, I remind you, a little bit of a reminder, did Ahimaaz know that the son was dead. Job said, I can't send you. The son's dead. He clearly knows, but he's not telling him. But what he is telling him is, you have victory. That's what he's telling him, right? We won. We totally won. Oh, about that son thing? I know know there there was a commotion. I don't know. Maybe they were putting bagels on each other's heads. I really don't know. All I really know is there was a commotion. It was, but, but... but we have victory. That's all that really matters. We have victory. And the king said, turn aside and stand here because there's a second guy coming. So he turned aside, stood still. Verse 31. Then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, oh, there's good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all of those who rose against you. He also says there's victory. And the king said to the Cushite, as you would imagine, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushite answered, may the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you to do harm be like that young man. In other words, oh, he dead. And not only is he dead, may anybody who's messing with you be as dead as he is dead. Well, I don't think he has any idea where David's going with this. And the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he cried his eyes out. He wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I bet that's probably not the, the response the Cushite was expecting. The good news, though, is the Cushite wasn't killed for it. We can be we'd say that. But please hear me. David is, where is he in the locale of the city at this moment? Where is he? He's standing where? Between two gates. And a city and the city's name means two camps. And he is met by two messengers. One just he was named two camps because ultimately Jacob saw it as the camp of heaven, but also the camp of earth. And just like the sun who was hanging between heaven and earth, there's a choice to make. And here's the two messengers. One messenger says, There is total victory. Another messenger says, There is total victory. But this messenger says, there is victory, and that's all you need to know. This, mes- this messenger says, there is victory, but it is at the expense of the death of a son who hung on a tree. Did you get that? Now let me ask you, which, which messenger is from heaven and which one is from earth? And I remind you how this whole thing started. This started with a scene of a guy lying in bed and a person saying, come on, you've got victory. You're okay. It's harder to feel forgiven. You have victory. And the guy was just like the angry brother, unfaithful messenger who, as far as Job was concerned, didn't have a message at all to give. Because he's like, you know what? You have victory. It's cool. Listen, let me tell you, you do have victory, but that victory came at a cost. Grace is not cheap. You are so expensive. You are so valuable. You are so precious in the sight of God that he would give the one thing that was more valuable than anything else, his only begotten son. Let me say it this way. You are so expensive that only one person in the universe could afford you and it cost him everything. And that's what you need to know. Because if you don't know that, you don't realize how important you are in the sight of God. And the enemy knows it better than you do. The bottom line is, Jesus died on the cross. 
innocently because we deserve what happened to Absalom in our rebellion against the proper king, somehow seeing that we think we should make the rules and we should be able to call the shots, just like Absalom. But in the end of it all, we deserve to hang on a tree. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. There's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is, my God loved me and you so much that he let his son hang on a tree surrounded by an enemy army and he'd get beat within inches of his life and then hang on that tree to die. So don't tell me that grace is cheap. And don't tell me we can make this thing up or don't tell me there's a lot of choices. Because if my God is going to let his son do that and give you other options, that God is messed up. He's paid your price. What are we saying when God shows us his bloodied, crucified son and he says, this is what I did so I could be with you, so I could adopt you, so I could have you as my own. And you look at that son and then you say, yeah, what else you got? What are we saying? But as we go to prayer, beloved, I just want you to realize that this is what we need to be as messengers now. We need to be messengers that are not mamby-pamby. The world does not need Christian jellyfish. What the world really needs are people that are going to be honest, true messengers. They're going to say, yes, there is victory, but there is only one way through that victory, and that way is at the death of the Son. So don't tell me that, that this guy and this guy and this guy are all the same because they are not the same. Nobody else died for me. Nobody else volunteered for it. Nobody else lived a perfect life to qualify. Jesus is unique. No matter what I want to make up, the more I want to make up rules that incorporate other things than Jesus, what I'm saying in the end is that I'm actually being an Absalom. Especially when God says, I've paid your price. Why do you want to try to redo the rules when they are all entirely in your favor? It makes no sense. So, beloved, as we go to prayer today, let me say, at this moment... Your heart, like mine, is dangling between two camps. On one side, do you want to serve the world? Or do you want to serve the king? But what I've learned is we're dangling because we're not big enough to reach both. And we've got to make a choice. Now, not just we, it's not whether the king will serve us. Jesus is not just our savior. He is our Lord. And that is fundamental. And tonight as we go to prayer, I just want to encourage you and myself to make the conscious choice today. To not only say, God, I will serve you. You are my king. But also to ask God to make us the faithful messenger that does proclaim victory. Because the faithful messenger did proclaim victory. But he proclaimed victory at an expense. And we need to be clear on what that is. Jesus didn't just die for you. His death, he died for your sins so that that price could be paid. But he also rose again and he deserves to be Lord. His death says Savior. His resurrection says Lord. And we need that. And that's the decision we make tonight. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this word. I want to thank you for what we can learn here in Absalom's story. And seeing in this the demise of Absalom in us all. We are dangling right now with a choice to be made. And if we feel like we daunt or we dally or procrastinate, gravity is still there to pull us down. Unless we make a choice to serve the proper king and submit to the proper king, we will find ourselves being drawn down. And Lord, here we are in two camps. But my prayer of this would be one camp. I know that in, in Jacob's situation, he would have loved it to be one camp where all it was was just you and him and that there wasn't a world to have to live in. But as long as we live here, may we be as Paul to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So right now, here in this room, Lord, speak to our hearts. Let, let us be humble enough, Lord, to make an honest choice and not just to try to save face, but God, rip open our hearts and show us our need for you and how essential and imperative 
and foundational it is. How everything sits on the cornerstone of the sacrifice you had by sending Jesus to die on the cross to hang on that tree on our stead. So please... confirmed by the power of your Holy Spirit this truth in our hearts. And tonight, if you've never said yes to Jesus or you know you need to, you're not sure you have, you can walk out of here, sure. I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. You're saying, I agree. These are my words now. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. And in my own sin, I stand guilty before you. And I recognize that sin needs to be punished. But you so loved me, you sent Jesus your only begotten Son, to die on that cross so that all my sins could be paid for. And He was pierced and striped and He hung and He bled and He died. And when He died, my price was paid. And you give me a choice of whether I want to let that payment account for my sins or not. It's available, and all I have to do is say yes. But that's only half the story. You clearly tell us in your word that he was buried, and just like Scripture promised, on the third day he rose again, proving the price was paid, if you will, proving that the payment cleared, but also proving himself every right to be our Lord, our King. And I recognize it's one thing to say, sure, don't let me go to hell. It's an entirely different thing to say, let me now live for you. But that's what we're saying. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Have me now. I'm yours. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Have me now. I'm yours. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Have me now. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen. God, you've heard this now and I pray for every one of us that you make us faithful messengers. That don't just speak nice things. Don't just speak pleasantries. Don't just toss candy to kids. Instead, that today we make that decision that that we make the decision to no longer dangle. But today, to be a faithful messenger to say there is victory, but that victory came at that cost. Make us so faithful, I pray. Jesus, in your name, but the power of your Holy Spirit.